You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. And here we are. This is Sean Martin, and you're very welcome to a new episode of Audio Signals here on ITSP Magazine. I'm flying solo today. Marco's off, and uh, I get the pleasure to have our guest all to myself, uh, an amazing person we've had a chance to chat with before, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show again, Juliet Kayam. Thanks so much for being on. Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, we, we talked directly cybersecurity before. And uh, I mean, you, you've done so much. Uh, you're, you're a CEO, a co-founder, uh, you're an analyst on C CNN, uh, a lecturer at Harvard Kennedy School, and you're also an author. I think uh, yeah. six books under, uh, under the, the, the belt, shall we say, at this yeah. point. That's, that's a phenomenal number. First off, congratulations on <laughs> Thank that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, in between uh, government stints, I've uh, been on the faculty at the Kennedy School, which is a great place to be. So thank you. And so maybe let's just start with this yeah. first quote. Well, for those who haven't met you, virtually or otherwise, um, maybe a, a few points of what you do that really matters. I gave a bunch of titles and roles and things. Yeah. But what, who who is Juliet? So folks know who ah, you are. so that well, well, that is a good question. So I mean, perfect. Well, I'm a mother of three, uh, which which is obviously nice to remind people. So I'm just like you, uh, or somewhat like you. But I, you know, I I, I think about uh, safety and security as as the as the CEO of a home as much as I do as as someone who has run institutions, who advises institutions. Professionally, I like to say my my I've had one career in many jobs, and I I essentially am in the risk reduction, uh, disaster management space. Uh, it's taken a variety of different twists and turns. Some people's careers are like that. I've been in government, three major stints at the 
Department of Justice, state government as a Homeland Security Advisor to a governor and as Assistant Secretary at DHS. Uh, I am on the faculty at Harvard's Kennedy School where I run the Homeland Security Program. I, I do a lot of corporate work advising CEOs and, and uh, boards and, and others about building for preparedness. Uh, and I'm also, as you said, an author and a CNN analyst and a columnist for The Atlantic and, and, uh, and um, a contributor to WGBH, where I like, you know, I, I say I'm blessed to have these platforms to be able to try to communicate to people about the world that we're in, which uh, we tend to mystify, glamorize, keep secret. And ultimately, this book, which has been in my head, I would say for 10 to 15 years is uh, is a way to make uh, disaster management accessible, because I just it's essentially a lot of stories. <laughs> and hopefully we'll we'll uh, get a few of those stories. Right. Um, not many disasters taking place lately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um. So I'll be totally honest. Well, I'm always honest, but I'll be. It, it is. It makes um anyone who's in our space who has platforms and stuff. It's it's hard because you don't want to take advantage of some of the horrors that are going on, but everything that happens is relevant. They didn't do this. They did this. This was good. This was bad. Uh, but that is the theme of the book. I mean, the devil never sleeps is, is obviously about recurring disasters and how we are thinking about disaster management all wrong. Um, and so the book is part opening the curtain for readers simply to see how the profession works, because I think that's important, and part history of what went right and wrong from centuries of past crises. So I, you know, from the Trojan War to, to, to Surfside, I get all the way to Surfside, Florida. Um, my goal was to reframe how we think about disasters and success. Um, and so in an age when disasters, as you note, are not random or rare, uh, simply put, we need to learn to fail safer. In other words, we have to uh, 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 not, not focus on the possibility or even what are the probabilities of, 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 of reaching the boom of the devil arriving and begin to, to figure out what can we learn from good disaster management, right? Cause we always focus on the bad. Uh, what are the, what are the lessons we can take from the stories that I tell that, that help us fail safer? So in other words, I'm assuming a certain level of harm and I basically argue for a standard of less bad, that our investments in preparedness and response really have to be measured in sort of a less bad standard. Uh, and, um, and then I provide what those lessons are. Yep. I love it. And here's a bit of OSINT for some folks listening. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Surfside. I, I was actually considering uh, some property down that way, <laughs> <laughs> right, right around the time that that uh, event occurred. And I won't say that it has stopped me from yeah. pursuing it, but it certainly gave me pause. And I guess yeah. what I want to get your perspective on, and I don't know if you cover this in the book or not, is just disasters shouldn't stop us from living or proceeding no, or progressing, right? Right. So that's, and I think like COVID is a good example, like, or where we are in COVID right now and the debates that are going on about opening up. I uh, talk about, I don't talk about safe, as I said, safer. I don't talk about risk elimination. I talk about risk minimization. I don't talk about consequence, you know, consequence, uh, 
uh, uh, elimination. I talk about consequence minimization. In other words, if if we want to live in the society that we certainly want to live in, right? Think about just even the action of getting into an airplane, but nuclear facilities and uh, you know oil and and uh, uh, living in certain places. We can learn uh, how to live. And uh, with the expectation that something bad will happen, I want to put one little caveat on this. There is a part in the book in which uh, the the I do say it may be that in so some places, uh, let's say Surfside or Paradise, California, where there was a major fire that killed nearly 100 people, that that there are places where we have to learn to retreat. That, in other words, because of the expectation that the fire will come again. But for the most part, we can learn to manage the consequences a lot better. And so many th questions and thoughts yeah. in my head, but let's go here. Does it have to be the right person to mm -mm. prepare for and manage the the disaster <laughs> no pending. i mean like, i mean it's just, can anybody just, be a disaster uh, and we already are yeah. i mean in some ways I, the sell of this book was relatively easy like to convince people like you're going to be in a crisis every day is relatively easy to do uh when it comes to after covid but this is not a covid book it's, it's really important even though i know your what your focus is and the last time i was on here we talked specifically about cyber i'm quite agnostic about what the harm what the cause of the harm is throughout the book i simply say the boom right and and i'm agnostic is it a terror attack a cyber attack a slow roll pandemic you know a hurricane an earthquake a um uh whatever it is right and 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 the problems, right? Because there's so many problems, so many risks that you can focus on. The problems, I say, don't follow patterns, but the solutions actually do if you're just willing to, to, to study disasters, right? It's a, it's a field of study so that the causes may vary, but the consequences are often the same. So in our space in the, or in the cyberspace, one of the examples I use um, to describe sort of the, the, the faulty architecture that often happens in a lot of our industries is the bifurcation of cybersecurity from physical security. So the best example, of course, is Colonial Pipeline, where they had a rigorous, what do I say, sort of, you know, uh, 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 information security, you know, in other words, they were, they were trying to protect themselves from breach. That doesn't happen. The ransomware attack against colonial pipeline here in the United States, which is of course impacted our, our energy distribution was not very sophisticated. In fact, we have every reason to believe that the ransomware attackers were kind of surprised of how bad colonial pipeline had planned its what we call right of boom preparedness. And what had happened was, you know, they're trying to protect their wires, whatever. Okay, let's assume that doesn't happen. It cannot be that your only plan is to turn off for a week. That's not a sophisticated response plan. And so part of what I talk about is you don't have to be a cyber expert. You don't have to be, you know, like basically this is simple unity of effort. Like, are you, you know, what could go wrong? And then are you ready for the consequences of what can go wrong? And so what I try to do is relate stories from my own personal life, from my own personal experiences, uh, but as well as, you know, the big ones like Fukushima and, 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 and relatively small ones so that everyone can think about what it is uh, that they can do to learn to fail safer on the home, individual, corporate, institutional, whatever it is. Um, and so uh, that's that's the goal is to is to uh, give people the tools 
for a less bad standard, right? Because I think people, I think one of the challenges, as I write in the book, I mean, one of the challenges is, of course, it can seem so overwhelming. And so uh, that my book has been described as accessible, as as user-friendly, as easy read, those are all compliments, right? I mean, in other words, that's exactly what I wanted because no one's going to read a book about incident command structure, right? Like we're not going to do that. The The other thing that's important uh, for me in terms of of the audience is, 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 is for um, me to tell the stories of what went right in the Boston Marathon, even though that was a terror attack, what went right uh, at a nuclear facility down the street from Fukushima. So that's the story I illuminate. Everyone remembers Fukushima and the radiation leak. No one remembers um, uh, the, the good nuclear facility. Well, we can learn a lesson from that. What went right when the Ever Given closed the Suez Canal? How come we didn't see a major disruption? And I tell those stories uh, so that people can see, oh yeah, there's there's a reason for the investment in preparedness and response planning. And can you maybe pull the string on one of your own personal stories, maybe to kind of illustrate yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. So I mean, I tell the story of um, uh, of the of the Haiti earthquake. So I'm in the Obama administration, uh, a horrible, horrible earthquake, and there's so the thing that you're trying to respond to when something like that happens is what we call stupid deaths. Well, actually the Haitians call them stupid deaths. I, the people aren't stupid who die. These are the deaths that occur not at the moment of, but because of the failure to prepare for the moment of, in other words, you can't get resources to people. And there's, you know, a famous line in my field called nine meals till anarchy, which is basically you have three days until people become very desperate. So one of the things I wanted to focus on is, okay, well, why, why did that response look like it is? People will remember, of course, it was horrible, whatever, but you know, why, why did getting 10,000 army military in first over say protecting the kids or, or whatever are the other hundred other needs, right? I meant, or the orphans. And one of the reasons is, is if you can get water and food to people quickly, you are going to minimize what we call the stupid deaths. And those are hard calculations. But if we begin to talk about them, people then will begin to understand, okay, there's a reason why you're doing this and not that. Um, on a more personal level, I mean, honestly, I mean, I have mother three. I mean, I, you know, COVID. And um, I was protecting, I was, I was screaming from the hilltops in February of 2020, what was about to happen. My first column for the Atlantic was titled America. You have no idea what's about to happen. Literally that was its title. Um, it was in early March and then things break down. But, um, I also, any, like any parent began to see the consequences of a strategy of risk elimination, right? Once we had the vaccine, uh, kids should be going back to school. Right. I mean, in other words, because the consequences of them not being in school were were had not been calculated into our original response. And so I became very, very vocal about, look, yeah, your kids less safe by going to school. We get that. We get that. On the other hand, we can do lots to minimize their vulnerability. And I think that's important for people like me to say, uh, uh, because my kids were, you know, the calculation for my kids was the same. Yeah. And it's a, actually recorded earlier, a conversation with the CISO of a large 
hospital system. And um, he, he was talking about the importance of a framework mm-hmm. and a program that is developed and implemented in a way that's dynamic and can handle crisis and dis- yeah. disasters. Um, yeah. Not not a set of technologies and tools no. and processes that are that are so defined and locked down that you're you're stuck scrambling every time. Yeah, and I, I know in in some of the content here uh, I was looking at to prepare this, you talk about offering up a new framework. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Obviously, a framework like NIST is one yeah. thing. Yeah, but I'm not talking about that. I'm thinking you're talking broader in terms of how to approach disasters and prepare yeah. for that, right? So, right. So, right. So I basically give eight. So, so basically the broad framework is this, and I make it simple for people. The world is divided into two times, right? So if you, if boom is the devil, right. And I'm going to be agnostic. We call it left of boom and right of boom, or I call it left of boom, right of boom. There's only two. One is, you know, all the things you're going to try to do to mitigate the harm, you know, or, or stop the harm. So all the technology that you're buying and cybersecurity mitigation efforts with climate change, all that stuff. And then on, uh, and then right a boom is all your response and resiliency and, and recovery apparatus. And so what I do is I focus on, okay, at that, I, I have a recurring theme in the book, which is, which is called you are here, right? So in other words, you are here at the moment of the boom. What could you have done to uh, protect what I call the high priority value of your organization. In other words, it doesn't have to be everything. It's just like the high priority things, right? The things that you um, want to uh, need to protect. And let's take the surprise out of disaster management, right? Just assume it's going to happen so that we're not as focused on risk and risk calculation and could X happen, but maybe Y is more likely and also focused on on on, on that consequence. So one key lesson of the aid and by the book, and you'll learn all eight, but you know, one, one major thing, well, the first chapter is called getting your head around it, which is simply stop focusing on different risks and stop and stop focusing on different risks and start focusing on consequence on major consequence management. And if you focus on that, you're going to, to, um, uh, result in less harm. Uh, and so one of the key, uh, uh, takeaways from looking at a gazillion disasters throughout is, uh, is the need for immediate situational awareness in the disaster. I think lots of people are confused. Um, it's hard to get reliable information in a disaster. And so, um, what we, what you can set up now are the capacities of reliable information that you would want when the bad thing happens. And it could be as simple as where are my kids and where are they going if I can't contact them to if you're the, um, if you're the, um, uh, uh, CEO of JetBlue, how come it takes you seven hours to realize 21 of your planes are stuck at LaGuardia and, and aren't, aren't at the gate, right? Like what, what, what discrepancy is happening there? Um, and so really focus on, you know, what information am, am I getting so that it drives resources in the, in the future? And I, I love this because you talk about consequence and, yeah. and not the event necessarily. And to me, Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but to me, the the, the consequence can be so multifaceted that mm-hmm. even just visualizing or 
gaining an understanding of it uh, could be difficult, let alone uh, yeah. communicating <laughs> around right. all of it and, and, and rallying folks around uh, a solution right. to, to minimize the consequence. Right? That's exactly right. And that's, so I talk about, you know, what are you communicating? And it's quite simple. You know, there's entire lecture, you know, entire courses, you know, master's degrees in in crisis communications. I'm, I'm going to make it very, this is, you know, I make it very simple for you. Two things, numbers and hope. And what I mean my numbers is people actually do want facts during a crisis. And for all the talk of, misinformation and all that craziness. I always have to remind my students and everyone like close to 80% of the U S population eligible U S population has one shot and close to 74% have two like, yeah, for all the noise out there, that's, those are pretty good numbers, right? So people want to know sort of, you know, what are the facts, what's happening, you know, how, and then, so it's numbers and hope. And then they also want to know, what are you doing to make tomorrow better because people's tolerance for harm, uh, uh, people will be tolerant of harm if they know there's a pathway out of the harm, right? In other words, you're not ignoring it as we saw in, in, uh, COVID. So one of the, uh, so basically numbers and hope is, is what I really want people uh, to focus on in terms of what would you want to know at that, what would you want to do at that moment of boom? So like when I say people are tolerant of risk, like I do think the debate about COVID has gotten us so skewed about risk elimination. Like there's no risk elimination. There's this is, this thing is going to be here for a while, but there's lots of risk minimization starting of course with the vaccine, but treatments and masking and all the stuff that we're all, that we're always yelling about. There's, you know, there's, we have 10 or 12 tools now to deal with COVID when in March of 2020, we had none except for to stay inside. And I want people to understand, like, we're just making a calculation, right? I mean, in other words, like the, the this notion of safe is a sort of a ridiculous notion. And that's what I want to disabuse people of so that, so, and maybe they can see that through the history of disasters, like disasters are tragic and chaotic, but they are also oddly familiar. They do tend to follow uh, the same demands. And it's those demands from situational awareness to stopping the stupid deaths to, um, uh, um, uh, to testing your systems as we, as we know, certainly in the cyber world, uh, um, uh, all of those lessons are, are, are accessible and knowable now. And you, you, I presume you talk a bit, well, in, in one of the write-ups talks about perpetual catastrophe. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and, and I can easily see a case where the numbers like put a knife in the hope. Yeah, <laughs> the I get that. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, do, do you talk about how to reset hope yeah um, and not burn out and things like that yeah so one of the stories that i tell i mean two of the main stories that i tell and i'll tell them now so people can get a flavor of like oh i get this right like these are stories i understand so one is the boston marathon so you know we focus on a couple numbers right two brothers right and the failure of being able to capture or stop the terror attack we we focus on three who died at the finish line so a tragedy of course right at the at the moment of the bombing the number I focus on in the book is 297. So 297 is the number of people who have what the medical profession would call traumatic injuries. And those ranged from, you know, major wounds to a loss of a limb, a loss of a hand or a foot. Uh, 297 people had what was called traumatic injuries. 
they are all transported to hospitals uh, in three states uh, based on the planning for a traumatic event or some sort of catastrophic event at the finish line. If you made it to a hospital, you did not die. So 297 is also my number, right? In terms of thinking about measuring success, not good. I mean, I don't live in the world of good. I live in the world of less bad, right? I mean, this is the this is what it means to live on the right side of the boom. Am I hopeful that the next time we'll stop the terrorists? Yes. Do I want to build for a world that's more resilient and, and less ideologically extreme, certainly. But as I keep saying, like, you know, we are here, like it's now that's the, the devil never sleeps. The other story I tell is, is, is the one about the other facility at Fukushima, March 11th, major earthquake leading to a tsunami. We focus on Fukushima, the nuclear facility that had radiation leak causing death and of course, evacuation and an un, uh, uninhabitable un, 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 un area right now. Um, still in Japan. The story we don't tell is of the facility down the street. Um, literally no lie. It was closer to, it's called Onagawa. Um, uh, it was actually closer to the epicenter, had more damage, uh, got lots of water. It did not have a radiation leak. So when I talk about standards of success, right, the difference between a crisis and a catastrophe, they both faced a crisis. But it, I look at the other facility and say, okay, wait a second. Like, you know, you have all these beliefs about nuclear safety. Let me tell you about the nuclear facility that most people have never even heard of before that actually failed safer. And what did they do? They had lots of, they had lots of training. They, 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 uh, they had a system that allowed the people on the ground to make decisions. So at Fukushima, they always had to call to Tokyo. So if you have to call to Tokyo in the middle of a crisis, uh, they knew how to, how to protect the radiation areas so that when the water came rushing in, uh, they, there would be no, uh, radioactive material leak. And so I take these two, you know, this, this story that we think we know of Fukushima and say, that's too simple right? Because I've got another nuclear facility down the street. So those are the kinds of stories that I tell about, okay, what, what are the stories I'm not telling about, or that we're not hearing about these disasters that can help us um, think about a world in which there's too many disasters. I get that. Yeah. And I'm wondering the, I love those examples. And Thank you. I'm, I'm wondering when, when you, I don't know if it's feedback you've received from those who read the book yeah. or uh, when you're engaging in in consulting with organizations or speaking at events, do do you find that people think they have a good crisis hmm. response plan? And uh, what what are they taking away from reading the book and engaging with you to say we need to start over? Or no, and I yeah, focus on or what, what do you hear? So I asked three questions at the end of the book, sort of okay, you know, you know where do I begin if it never ends? Right. Because you, there could be a you know, paralyzing aspect to it. So there's three questions I ask the reader to ask themselves. For the first is where am I? And I don't mean that existentially or like metaphysically. I mean, like, in other words, do, do you have your head around the potential for uh, a catastrophe or another, and then are you accessible, uh, you know, to lead, whether it's in your home or your CEO or institution leader, when that event happens. So, so a huge part of this is just accepting the right side of the boom, accepting that it will be your responsibility to fail safer. And, uh, 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 and that's success, right? Because in disasters, we tend to think of 
or disaster, you know, in, in our narratives, we think of success as no disaster and failure as disaster, right? So if you can stay on the left side of the boom, that's success. If you end up in the right side of the boom, that's failure. And that's just a, that's so simplistic. It's so binary. And I, and so why you fail safer. So that's the first question is, where are you? The second is, uh, how are you built? So I, this goes mostly to institutional leaders, um, uh, but also can apply to parents. Like when I think about our, our preparedness, if you want to call that, uh, uh, planning always, always revolved around me for obvious reasons. I'm the one who thinks about this professionally, but I'm also the one who's on the road. And so that's not a very good, so, you know, so we, we thought about, okay, how are we built as a family? Like, is this the right way to do it? And as the kids get older, you know, and they're in college, what would happen if X, Y, or Z happened? Um, and so one of the things that we're seeing and you're, and this is going to be very familiar to a lot of your uh, listeners is is the division between the chief security officer, the chief information security officer, and, and the rise of the chief medical officer, the chief public health officer. So you have these three different chiefs, right? Well, those are all risk-focused, but when the bad thing happens, your consequences are generally going to be the same. So um, I, I'm promoting with my clients or board speeches I give what, what I'd call the chief preparedness officer. Get out of, you know, you can have a director of information security. You can have an operations for physical, what we call guns, guards, and gates, you know, the physical stuff. But you really want someone who's thinking strategically, say, about what, what will happen to the institution. This is what Colonial Pipeline lacked. Think also about Sony, a major hack in which you know, relatively easy hack. Well, the consequences are felt physically in every movie theater that was planning on holding uh, this movie because of the threats that were coming from North Korea. So uh, that's one of my things. And then the third question is, where's your money? I can't, you know, tell people how much to spend on X, Y, and Z. I just ask people, you know, if you, if you have a hundred pennies, how much is being spent on preparedness generally, right? So if it's zero, you're in trouble. If it's two, you're probably still in trouble. If it's 20, that might be good or that. And then how much of that number, how much of that 20 cents is being spent on preparedness, on consequence management? So I think cybersecurity is a really good example of where if I gave you, a, if I said, okay, here's a dollar, how much is being spent on left of boom prevention versus right of boom? I think the industry is like at 80, 20. I mean, the number of companies that I go into that, you know, are, are so focused on breach and stopping the breach and, you know, all the, you know, defense and everything. And then when it happens, it's not entirely clear who's doing what. Right. I mean, think about. Um, and so I would change that a lot in the cyberspace. I yeah, would change that distribution. It's interesting you went there and I'm, I'm going to go right back there in a second. But I, I love the chief preparedness officer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> super, absolutely. Super cool. Yeah. Super cool. Now, what I want to do and close with and forgive me if this is a little complicated, but we're, we're talking about boom an yeah. event. I'm actually feeling the boom as I'm saying that, right? There's something big that happens. And you said the word binary. So it's one side or the other. Yeah. My question to you is, and I'm going to, I'm going to leverage the title of the book. Does the boom always represent itself or present itself as a devil? Huh. And, and the second part of the, my question is, 
does it always have to feel like a boom or can it be a slow burn? It can be a slow burn. And that's, I mean, that's the pandemic that can be a climate disaster. What, what separates a crisis and I'm clear to make a distinction because I, I actually just gave a talk at the Kennedy school and got into a healthy debate with someone, which is okay. So crisis is defined as, um, something that disrupts the core value of the institution, right? That's a, that is debilitating to that. So it's not your average emergency. It's not, you know, the fire alarm going off or whatever it is, uh, something core. It is, um, that in which your ability to respond is limited in time. So this is a little bit controversial because it means that I do see a distinction between the tornado or in the, or the hurricane coming through and climate change generally. And the reason why is because, you know, to the people impacted, yes, it's great to have big debates about climate change, but when the tornado is coming through, you just want to fail safer, right? You're just, and so I really do focus on, at least in the literature, how we define it is, um, that in, in thinking about it presents a restricted amount of time in which a response can be made. So you really are talking in limited time. And I do that to separate it from, honestly, just basically public policy challenges, right? So climate I'm, change, border, stuff like that. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke a little more, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'm, no. I'm thinking, I'm thinking misinformation in social yeah. media platforms. <laughs> yeah. Right, where, where there, there may be bad stuff happening, but not at a grand scale yet. Um, and another scenario might be, uh, I don't know, uh, a train station bombed versus uh, complete cities yeah. bombed. When, yeah. when, when, is, when, when does it turn into a crisis? Right. So, uh, I mean, it is. So one is to the person experiencing it. It will everything will see right. Is whether it's you know the the small bomb doesn't matter to the person who's uh, experiencing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear in terms of, you know, this is, this is a disruption to a high value priority of the organization. Right. So, so if you thought is, is, I mean, this sounds horrible, but you know, in a, in a, uh, nation that is suffering, uh, from, or let me put it different, something that is, of low consequence is not a crisis, right? So let, I, I use the example of selfie stick deaths, right? I mean, we have a couple dozen people a year die in the United States from selfie stick deaths. We're not going to base our entire crisis management system around them, right? I mean, you're just, those are low probability events. And so I really focus on the consequence side and it's, it's, it's a numbers game. I don't mean to, to suggest this number dead and that is okay. And that's not, but COVID is a perfect example. COVID was never going to have no fatalities, right? So the difference I'm looking at is, you know, 300,000 versus a million, right? Why did 300,000 people in the United States die since the vaccine was accessible, right? Like the, that's, the, that's what I'm looking at in terms of, of it. In terms of like, does the boom always have to be bad? There's a lot of opportunity in crisis, um, uh, uh, um, you know, crisis generally viewed as a disruption and disaster is defined as a misalignment of the stars, dis meaning bad and aster meaning alignment um, or, or the stars. So misalignment of the stars, but there are opportunities out of disasters uh, and um, 
they don't fit easily into the disaster management framework. Uh, but lots of people in disaster management are very much focused on that. Can we, for example, can we build a better disaster relief system that provides money to people so that they don't build exactly the same, right? Think of these houses that are going down in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Uh, why are we paying people to live like that? Let's pay them to move back 100 feet. Yeah, yeah, at some point. Well, some I'm point. A, <laughs> I don't know if I'd be buying there now, but uh, uh, Juliet, I mean, it's you've made me think a ton, which is the whole Good. point of, yes. of what we do here. And uh, I presume it's the whole point of your book. And beyond that, for your book, though, people to take action. Yes, and, uh, I hope I'm, so. And I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. I'm, I'm, uh, I want to congratulate you again on uh, number six. It sounds like it's getting well received by yes. those reading it, uh, business leaders, folks in government, and, and beyond that. And of course, for those listening to this, we'll put a link in, in the show notes so you can all grab a copy of the book. And uh, anything else that uh, Julia thinks would be helpful for folks to tap into as they consider disaster management, crisis management. Yeah. So, Julia, thank you so much for being part of a new audio signals here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it a lot. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.